0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by Source Radio, and our sponsors, the Chamberlain Family Foundation and the Stewart Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Fensterwald.
0: Well, John, this has been a good news, bad news week for schools.
1: Well, I'm glad there's some good news, Lewis. Seems like all we've been getting for months is more bad news.
0: So let's get the bad news out of the way then. The coronavirus pandemic is spreading seemingly out of control in most parts of the state. Governor Newsom this week declared that 41 out of the state's 58 counties are now in the purple tier. And that covers over 90% of all students in the state.
1: Wow, 90%. That means that school districts in those counties can't bring students back into their buildings anytime soon unless they're already offering in-person instruction there.
0: And don't forget, John, they can also apply for waivers for students in kindergarten through the sixth grade. Some school districts are doing that. And to make things even more complicated, they can also bring in small groups of students with special needs.
1: Yeah, that's pretty complicated. But the main thing is that most students are now in counties that can't reopen their schools anytime soon. And that's just a big turnaround from just a month ago when things were going really in the opposite direction.
0: So what's the good news then?
1: Well, the good news is that the Legislative Analyst's Office came out with its annual update on the state budget and its projections for the next few years, and what the LAO calls a remarkable but unevenly spread turnaround. The state's finances and its economy are in better shape than state finance experts projected and the legislature assumed when they passed the budget in June a lot better.
0: And to help explain what's happened and what's likely to happen, we're pleased to have with us Edgar Cabral. He's a leading analyst in the Legislative Analyst's Office. He's been following these issues for years. Welcome, Edgar.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I just wanted to ask you, I mean, middle of a pandemic, economy in terrible shape, and the LAO reported some pretty good news this week for schools. How do you explain this? I mean, how did this happen?
2: The outlook for schools is driven substantially by our office's projections of general fund revenues. Uh, There's a formula for schools called the Prop 98 Minimum Guarantee that has a minimum funding level that the state needs to provide to schools and community colleges And that. One big factor is general fund revenues. So um, when the state passed its June budget, there was an expectation that general fund revenues were going to drop substantially. I think the projection was about a 20 percent decline year over year in the personal income tax, which is the biggest tax revenue that the state has. Those significant decreases have not materialized necessarily. And the revenue situation that the state is in right now, that, that at least that we're projecting in our main outlook, looks much closer to the situation that the governor had projected in January of 2020 prior to the pandemic.
0: I imagine lots of things went into this, but how come those general fund revenues didn't go down?
2: The projections that the Department of Finance made that were ultimately used in building the, the budget were made in the springtime. And I think in the springtime, what we had seen is a significant economic recession, and we hadn't really seen the signs of the recovery quite yet. So now that we've, were are f- several months out, what we've seen is that there have been aspects of the economy that have improved. In particular, uh, stock prices are going up and technology is doing well. And in terms of employment, what we see is that those with a bachelor's degree or above seem to be doing, uh, seem to have minimal losses in, in job losses during this recession. The state's budget is really reliant on individuals who are on the higher end of the income distribution, so people who are, have, have higher incomes. And a lot of that comes from both their wages, but also capital gains revenue, which is related to the stock market. Um, that's meant that, that our revenue situation really has not been declining in the way that was expected when the June budget was passed.
1: It certainly shows the unevenness of this recovery. I mean, it's just stark differences by income. But the good news for schools, though, is that you're predicting $13 billion in one-time money because of this recovery this year. It will go towards next year, right? And that pretty much takes care of the cuts that are in this year's budget, does it not?
2: The final budget ultimately did make significant budget reductions for schools, but those were all done... through payment deferrals. So essentially, we're reducing funding this year by paying late.
0: So Edgar, that meant that school districts would have to somehow dig into the reserves or borrow money and so on to make up for those funds that the state would eventually have to pay
2: back, right? Right. It's a way to uh, reduce state funding during this, what we expected to be a difficult budget situation, while at the same time, not just cutting programs. Instead, You know, districts can go out and borrow. They can use their reserves to try to continue to operate programs as they are. Now, the deferrals in the budget were were significant. They were $12.5 billion overall in terms of payment deferrals. And John, as you mentioned, in in our fiscal outlook, we estimate that the state will need to provide an additional $13.7 billion to meet the Proposition 98 obligations. You could use 12.5 of it to pay off those payment deferrals completely, and then you would still have another $1.2 billion that could be used for additional one-time activities.
1: So give us the pros and cons for that. I mean, the governors in the past have said, pay off deferrals, these short-term loans that districts have to do as quick as you can, because they're, they're debts and they have to be paid back sometime. But at the same time, schools will argue, look, we've got tremendous expenses next year, potentially with the pandemic still. And so how do you balance this out? And what's the LAO recommending here?
2: We think trying to repay the deferrals is a good idea it helps improve the cash flow issues for school districts and community colleges as when we defer payments they are then relied on to go out and find sources of funding to make sure that they don't have to cut programs it also means you know one thing that when you do implement a payment deferral eventually you're supposed to pay it back right you're supposed to get back on track and so that payment is going to need to come at some point if you don't make that payment now with this one-time funding it does mean that in future years when prop 98 is funding is growing Rather than expanding programs, you might be needing to use that funding to, to pay off your deferrals. So that, that means that future funding can be dedicated to other things. There would be $1.2 billion in funding available for other activities that could be used for other, um, a variety of needs, depending on what the, you know, the legislature thought might be the most effective use of funding. But there is sort of this, uh, this trade-off is that you, you can't use it for other activities if you were going to use it to pay off deferrals.
0: Former Governor Brown really moved ahead to try to pay off those deferrals. But I think the previous governor <laughs> accumulated huge amounts of deferrals and that's something the state probably wants to avoid.
2: To the degree that you pay them back, that means that in future years, you could use them as a tool again in the future to avoid cuts in the future. Whereas if you continue with $12.5 billion in payment deferrals, then maybe that it becomes a little bit more difficult to just add more deferrals to that in a, in a future economic situation.
1: You say $13 billion. But I, it's important not to get married to that Figure, right? Because as you say in the report, it could be a lot better or it could be a lot less. There are some variables out there that make it hard to predict.
2: In our main outlook, we try to help emphasize the uncertainty and the range of possibilities with our revenue estimates. And we always try to do that so that the readers understand, the legislature understands that there is a range of possibilities. But I think, in particular, in in this environment, being in the middle of a pandemic, I think that makes these estimates even more uncertain.
0: Talking with Edgar Cabral from the Legislative Analyst's Office in Sacramento. Edgar, there was one piece that kind of jumped out at me when uh, you and your colleagues presented these findings this week. Apparently, the legislature promised several billion dollars in additional funding, but just starting next year. You're suggesting or your office is suggesting that the legislature might consider pulling back on those funds. I'm sure that's something that probably most school districts wouldn't be that enthused about.
2: In this past budget, there was a, some statutory some additional statute that required supplemental payments to schools and community colleges beginning in the 21-22 fiscal year. This is on top of the, the proposition and the minimum requirements. The idea of those payments, I think our understanding of the reason why they were included was that they would be additional payments in the future to help districts recover from what was expected to be significant declines in funding because of the recession. Now that we now have our our revised fiscal outlook, those reductions do not occur.
0: Edgar, we've been talking about all this great news for this coming year, but actually you're presenting a rather grim picture down the road over the next several years that the state would, if it continued to spend like it is, incur uh, very significant deficits. On one hand, a good picture, but longer term, not good.
2: Yeah, I think maybe the simpler way to describe that in terms of the state's overall picture is to say that revenues in this current year are significantly better than were expected during the June budget. Now then, moving beyond this current year and looking at the out years, what we're seeing is fairly sluggish general fund revenue growth of about 1% per year. And we also project that overall in our state programs, expenditures growing at more like 4.4% per year. So what that means is over the period, we're seeing that the state has operating deficits throughout the period, meaning that we don't have enough revenues coming in each year to cover our current level of programs. Either there need to be reductions somewhere else in the state budget, or there needs to be additional revenues or other potential solutions to make sure that the budget is balanced.
1: We've been speaking with Edgar Cabral, who is the Deputy Legislative Analyst in K-12 for the LAO. Thank you, Edgar. Thanks, John. Well, Lewis, you know, it's just a reminder with all this good news that under a progressive tax system that California has, you can bring in a lot of money and still have a lot of hardship. And that's what we're seeing now. The recession spared the wealthiest by far, and it's the low-income families that have borne the brunt of it. And we're probably going to need some of that surplus to help them out over the next year. The other thing to remember is that the LAO chose sort of the middle figure in all of its estimates. So the surplus. The windfall, what they're calling it, for schools could be a lot less or it could be a lot more. We'll see what the governor comes out with in January.
0: And one of the big questions that he will have to face and the legislature is whether they will pay off those deferrals, uh, which is something that Governor Brown really was intent on doing.
1: We'll have to see what Governor Newsom thinks when uh, he brings out his budget in early January.
0: John, we can't ignore the extraordinary events going on at the national level and the fact that our president, over two weeks after the election,
1: has refused to concede. Yeah, in fact, just the opposite. He continues to insist that he won.
0: This really remains a dangerous time for our democracy, I think. This should be a teachable moment for young people across the country to really drill down on the shortcomings of our democratic system and why an informed citizenry is crucial, not only
1: for it to work well, but it seems like for its survival. But unfortunately, civics education is in a pretty feeble state in California schools, as a new report from UC Riverside and UCLA has powerfully underscored. We're pleased to have with us one of the principal co-authors of the report, Erica Hajin. She is co-director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at UC Riverside. Welcome, Erica.
3: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: What did the 2020 election tell you about the role of schools to revitalize American democracy in their communities as well as nationally?
3: It's a great question. I think this recent national election underscores three important things that we've been thinking about related to our work. I think the first thing is that we all clearly see their are deep divisions in our civic community. So there's an increase in partisanship in the nature of politics, and that makes it difficult for people to discuss issues across political perspectives, but also to explore solutions together to shared problems. The second thing that really surfaced in this national election, but also previous elections, is just the increase and sort of proliferation of misinformation and disinformation. So it's really critical, we see in civic learning, but across subject areas, that schools really play an important role in supporting young people to learn how to find trustworthy information online, how to determine if the information that they find is credible. And I would say the third thing that was really underscored in this recent election is that young people are increasingly interested and also engaged in politics.
1: So despite this great interest among young people, your survey, your report found that civics and democracy education have been de-emphasized in schools. What do the data show?
3: This study that we did shed some light on the extent to which California school districts are prioritizing democratic education. So when we searched a representative sample of districts across the state, we found that only 15% of districts substantially address civics in their mission or vision statement. So that means that what we're seeing is that more than 5 million of California's students are attending schools that do not articulate any sort of substantial focus on civic education. We also found that um, civic and democratic commitments are absent from districts' accountability plans. There was also little staffing and infrastructure to support civic learning.
1: So the significance of the LCAP is that those set the priorities and indicate where the money's going. And so if there's no mention or indication, that's probably a really good sign that that's not a priority and they're not spending initiatives on that. Exactly. One thing I was not aware of, and I don't think most Californians
0: are aware of this, that there's now something called the seal of civic engagement that the State Board of Education approved. But that's something that can go on a student's high school diploma. That just happened, right?
3: That's right. Yeah. So districts have the option to weigh in and adopt the seal of civic engagement, and we see this as a great opportunity to not only lift up the importance of civic learning, but also to recognize students. We see young people at the forefront of a lot of civic engagement um, in our society today, so we see this as a real opportunity. I think it's really important that districts adopt the SEAL at the same time we recommend that they think about a sort of comprehensive strategy or plan to integrate civic learning experiences so that all students have the opportunity to be eligible for the SEAL so that it's not something where we see sort of inequitable gaps in terms of who's able to earn the seal and we know that students are very interested and excited about this so there were a number of students through an organization called gen up or generation up who advocated for the seal They came to the state board of education meeting they produced a video they did a whole social media campaign saying they really want the seal and they really want opportunities to be recognized um, for their civic engagement
1: it's often been said that you know you teach what you test but i notice you're not recommending a test in civics
3: Oftentimes, you know, there'll be a signal towards a kind of standardized test that would only really measure civic knowledge. And so I think with civic learning in particular, we have to be really careful that if we are thinking about sort of assessment measures, that we're not just limiting it to looking at sort of civic knowledge because action, engagement and discussion, all of those kinds of things are an important part of it as well.
0: You know, we just gone through this uh, rather traumatic experience where all the flaws of American system of government are being exposed, and I think a lot of people are really disillusioned. And when you think of civics education, there is a kind of rah-rah aspect, you know, we've got this great system of government, and students need to know that and how to participate. But how do you deal with that, and is that what you're talking about around civic
3: engagement? When we think about civic learning, it's not just about how do we prepare to vote, and it's not just about the sort of civic knowledge. We want to think about it also in terms of civic discussion and deliberation. We want to think about it in terms of taking informed action. And I would also say in today's age, we want to think about civic media literacy, right? So how do we build those sort of media literacy skills as well for students?
1: That was Erica Hodgen. She is co-director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at UC Riverside.
0: Well, John, I just wonder what, if any, civics education President Trump
1: got while he was in school. If he hasn't accepted reality come January 20th, he'll be getting a civics lesson of his own. And the rest of us, too. And I think that's enough
0: punditry for this week. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Thanks again, Kobe, for managing all of this remotely. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Sources own Justin Allen. Please consider making a contribution to our Newsmatch campaign when your contribution to EdSource is worth triple the amount to us. Just go to our website and click on the Donate button. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.